The following podcast contains explicit language. Welcome to Mom and Dad are Fighting, Slate's parenting podcast for Thursday, November 2nd, the What's Under the Bed edition. I'm Gabriel Roth, an editor at Slate, and I am the father of Eliza, who is six years old, and Leo, who is three years old. I'm Rebecca Lavoie, a digital journalist and podcaster in New Hampshire, and I am mom to Henry, who is 16, Teddy, who is 14, and my stepdaughter, Lily, who is 17. And I am Carvel Wallace, uh, a father and writer and podcaster based out in Oakland, California, but today reporting from Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania. And I'm the father of uh, Georgia, who is 12, and Ezra, who is 14. Today on our show, we have questions from listeners. We have recommendations. On Slate Plus, Rebecca is going to tell us what happened when a small New Hampshire school district attempted to combat sexual harassment and found their efforts thwarted by high school boys. But first, we have triumphs and fails. Rebecca, triumph or fail? I've got a fail. I have a fail in that I did not uh, take a parenting teaching opportunity and, and discussion opportunity that fell into my lap I was too much of a fraidy cat and just avoided it. Um, so I, last week, as I mentioned, I didn't do any parenting because the boys were with their dad for the first time in a couple of months for the whole week. So I took the opportunity to um, do some rearranging in Teddy's room. He had two twin beds in his room, and his room isn't very big. So he had expressed an interest in taking out one of the twin beds so he would just have a little bit more space. And so I thought, he's not here. It's a good time to do that. So because of the way his room is configured... The twin bed that I took out isn't the one that he was sleeping on, but the one he was sleeping on was in better condition. So I had to move the one he was sleeping on to the other side of the room. And when I did that, I found so much weird and disgusting crap under his bed, (laughs) like the kind of thing that um, in most circumstances you might be like, Hey, what are you doing with this? I'll give you some like um, benign examples of some of the things I've under his bed. Warm us what, up with the benign examples, and then what are we'll you move doing with these? To the more malign examples. <laughs> what are you doing with these four steak knives under your bed? Uh, okay. What are you doing with these seventeen crate and barrel catalogs under your bed? And then there were some, you know, uh, pictures from the internet and stuff. And then there was some other stuff, which, frankly, just for his sake, I don't want to mention on a podcast that like even more than 12 people listen to. And I kind of like put some of the more suspect items in like a bin and think I was thinking like, oh, I'll talk to Teddy about this, find out what's up with this, this and this when he comes back. And the end of, as the end of the week approached and it came time for him to come back, I was really excited to see them. And it was a really busy week because Teddy just started uh, rehearsing in the school musical and Henry has all of this stuff going on with applying for National Honor Society. And it's like super busy. And I looked at that bin of stuff and I was just like, screw it. I just threw it all away. And I'm like, I did not feel like having a weird conversation with my son where we uh, have teachable moments and dissect all of these weird things <laughs> under his bed. So I just threw away everything in the bin and um, let the moment pass and haven't talked about it with him. And he hasn't mentioned it either. Like, hey, when you moved my bed, did you find my weird cache of strange crap? So, yeah, I just avoided it. Complete avoidance. So that's my fail. I'm pretty sure Teddy would register that as a triumph. <laughs> I'm sure you I would. I was going to say, that's that's the best case scenario for him. Like second to you not going there at all. Yeah. <sighs> that's going to have to be addressed at some point, don't you think? I mean, is that can that just remain kind of you a know don't what? ask, don't tell? I'll be thing? honest. If there were drugs or alcohol under his bed, sure. Yeah. Sure. If I'd found sure. something that's like 
indicative of anything that I don't view in the spectrum of like normal teen boyness. Steak knives were a little weird, but I also know he likes to sneak food up to his room and eat it up there. So it's probably all that was about. I don't think he was like um, stabbing any stuffed animals or anything. But um, uh, yeah, no, if, if there had been something that I was actually deeply concerned about that seemed in some way aberrant to what I see as just normal but often really disgusting and sometimes conversation-worthy teen boy behavior, we would have a conversation. But I really didn't feel like starting the week off, you know, with the one that we would have had about the weird crap I found under his bed. You know what I mean? What you're saying is all the pornography was reasonably mainstream. <laughs> <laughs> something like that. Yes. Something <laughs> along those lines. <laughs> I, I wonder if this is this is actually raises an interesting philosophical thing because I feel like one of the mistakes that people always make when their kid does ends up doing something horrific that lands them on the news is they always go, oh, we had no idea. And um, and part of that has to do with sometimes kids are good at hiding things. But I, I often theorize as a parent that some portion of that might have to do with parents just not wanting to have difficult or uncomfortable conversations sure. with their kids. So I wonder if maybe not right now, but maybe at some point you say, hey, can we briefly just check in about some of the stuff I found <laughs> under your bed? Just because mm-hmm. you don't want – I mean, you know what I mean? You don't want to like sort of be caught unawares – not, right. I'm not no. suggesting that Teddy is up to anything terrible, but it's kind of a – I think with parenting, especially teenage boys, I think it's better to talk more than less. Oh, I totally agree. And and I think there will be opportunities in the future to address some of those things sure. because yeah. I don't think it's the final time I'll find some of those right. things. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> right. But it, he won't he won't be able to say, well, this is the first time. We'll be like, no, it's not because <laughs> back in October of – 2017 when I was rearranging your room. Um, Yeah, no, I agree with you. But, you know, sometimes you just, I, for one, I can't speak for everyone. I just don't feel like getting into it. I just want to have a nice dinner and have it be nice and like watch some uh, uh, Stranger Things season two and just have a nice night. You know know what I mean? There's definitely (laughs) that. And then there's also like, uh, you know, without having a specific itemized list and and photographs of what you found under the bed, which we could hypothetically post to our Facebook page, facebook.com slash mom and dad are fighting. Uh, if in in the absence of that, we're, we we have to assume that this is not something that's like indicative of he's about to go on a rampage or do damage to himself or anybody else or whatever. That and so the issue really is more one of embarrassment, like right. And and you know when you're a teenage boy, you are so embarrassing. Everything you do or think or feel <laughs> is on some level unbelievably embarrassing. And yep. and the idea of your mom just wanting to sort of hold it up to the light and like have an open and frank discussion about it. I you 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 desperately need privacy just to ward <laughs> off the feelings of embarrassment that otherwise would take over your life as a teenage boy. I'm down with not talking about it. Is what I'm saying. <laughs> All right, good. I don't know. I mean, I might be in the minority on this one because I do think that – I mean, I think that it has to be handled with kid gloves, pun intended. But I do think that you – I think it's – I think it's worth – yes, it is embarrassing to be a teenage boy and especially to talk to your mother about things that you feel like are personal. But I also think that as a parent, um, part of the bullet that we take is is like – wading into some uncomfortable conversations just if for no other reason than that the kids know that the phone lines are open should something 
even more confusing and difficult come up. Right? right. And this is this is what I mean. Like it might this might not be the thing, but the next thing that sort of appears in Teddy's life that he's on the fence about whether or not he should bring it to you and maybe, but it's kind of embarrassing. But do we talk about this stuff? But no, we never talk about this stuff. Or yeah, I guess we kind of talk about this stuff sometimes. That's sort of what I'm thinking about. I, yeah. I feel like that the whole I mean, this is just my theory, is that the main thing is to keep the lines of communication as open as possible for the one time that they actually do need it and actually is important. Yep. And uh, remind me to talk to you guys in a future Slate Plus about a time that my older son called me with needing a hangover cure. And that will open up that whole discussion. Because I agree with you. I think it's really important to... Open, keep those lines open and do it in a way that isn't shameful, that's not embarrassing, but that's constructive. Um, And that is about, you know, your relationship and boundaries and like life lessons and all that stuff. But sometimes, Carvel, I'm going to stick with it. You just don't fucking feel like it. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) That's true that you don't feel like it. Yes. That I agree with, that you don't feel like it. All right. Looking forward to that uh, hangover cure. Uh, Carvel, (laughs) triumph or fail? Uh, I don't. I don't know. This is a little bit like Rebecca's thing last week. I actually haven't seen my kids since uh, f- since f- Wednesday night because I left on Thursday morning at like six fifteen a.m. out of California to come to my hometown of Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania, to record the last two episodes of the podcast that I'm launching on November fifteenth. And uh, try and fail or plug. <laughs> <laughs> I, I triumphed at plugging my podcast, um, but and so it's been it it it's been weird to not talk to not see them. I did my son did call me when I was on a road trip from New York to um, Pittsburgh, and he he wanted to preemptively let me know that his teacher was maybe going to email about a missing homework assignment, but it wasn't his fault, blah, 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 so on and so forth. So we had this long conversation with him kind of like trying to get out in front of the story. And um, <laughs> I basically, because a couple of days ago, I put down the following rule. He was like, well, my teacher emailed, but it's not my fault, blah, blah, blah. And I said, look, when we're not getting emails from your teachers and your grades aren't bad, then we'll know everything is fine. It doesn't matter how, it doesn't matter why. And we're really trying to get this thing about personal responsibility over to him at 14 and he's having a really hard time with that concept he just keeps being like but the teacher didn't but the homework wasn't clear but other kids didn't but i wasn't sure if but you didn't tell me you know like stuff like that that's his answer to everything so i feel like this one conversation that we had i was able to push it a little bit further and i think the fact that he called me even though he was sort of doing preemptive damage control the tone of the conversation felt to me like he sort of gets that it's important that he manage his grades, which seems like basic stuff for me, but for him is like a big progress from even where he was like this time last year. So I guess a slow and steady progress, not perfection type triumph is what I would call it. We need to have a retreat. We need to send uh, your son and my son Teddy on a retreat together. (laughs) A personal responsibility (laughs) schoolwork retreat. Yeah, I can't imagine anything good would come out of that. <laughs> imagine we'd find out of the I think beds. They, yeah, I think. Yeah. <laughs> I just have a triumph. I just have an awesome, awesome triumph. Last night, uh, as we taped this, uh, last night was Halloween. Took the kids trick-or-treating. We trick-or-treat in the neighborhood. It's nice. A lot of houses, a lot of stores. It's fun. Um, and I just, as we started doing it, I remembered last year taking Eliza out. Um, Leo was too young to to do any like active trick or treating last year. But last year, I just remembered every single house we would go to. She would go up. She would say 
trick or treat. They would give her some candy. She would turn around and walk away. I would say, what do you say? She would turn back around. She would say, thank you. We would go on to the next house. Same thing happens. There was some weird way in which I was unable to make like saying thank you part of her response to being handed free candy, which it seems like is like basic, basic manners. Um, And so the first time it happened last night, I was able to figure out a solution to this, which is I said to her, okay, I noticed you didn't say thank you there. From now on, Every house where you don't say thank you, I am taking one piece of candy as a thank you tax. <laughs> Didn't miss a house. She got every single house after that. I, I, I took a little three wow. musketeers for the first one. And other than that, she would say thank you. And then she would like – Leo would go up and like stick out his hands for candy. And then she would instruct him to say thank you as well. Nice. Because it was now the main thing in her mind was protecting her candy from me, the candy stealer. Uh, and so I have taught her about manners and also about the way in which Pigovian taxes function in society, a tax on negative externalities. Uh, and hopefully um, she will carry this lesson on thank you into other circumstances as well. So um, parenting trick-or-treat triumph right here. Thank you very much. Sure is. Nicely done. This episode is brought to you by Progressive Insurance. Hey, listeners, whether you love true crime or comedies, celebrity interviews, news, or even motivational speakers, you call the shots on what's in your podcast queue, right? And guess what? Now you can call the shots on your auto insurance, too. Enter the Name Your Price tool from Progressive. The Name Your Price tool puts you in charge of your auto insurance by working just the way it sounds. You tell Progressive how much you want to pay for car insurance. Then they'll show you a variety of coverages that fit within your budget giving you options. Now, that's something you'll want to press play on. It's easy to start a quote, and you'll be able to choose the best option for you, fast. It's just one of the many ways you can save with Progressive Insurance. Quote today at Progressive.com to try the Name Your Price tool for yourself and join over 28 million drivers who trust Progressive. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company and Affiliates. Price and coverage match limited by state law. Before we move on, let's do the business. If you have a question you'd like us to answer, leave us a message at 424-255-7833 or email us at slate.com. Be sure to check out Slate's Political Gab Fest, the weekly roundtable hosted by David Plotz, Emily Bazelon, and John Dickerson, where they discuss the political news of the week, the kind of informal and irreverent discussion that Washington journalists have after hours over drinks. It was voted the favorite political podcast of iTunes listeners. Check out Slate's Political Gab Fest wherever you get your podcasts. In Slate Plus today... Uh, We're going to hear from Rebecca about what happened in her New Hampshire school district when the authorities started taking steps to combat sexual harassment and some of the students made it a little more difficult. To hear segments like that and to get your podcasts without any ads at all, sign up for Slate Plus. Slate Plus is a great way to help support this show and all the other work that Slate does. For just $35 for your first year, you can help cover the cost of producing this show and your other favorite shows. And of course, in return, you get these extended ad-free versions of our shows and a ton of other great benefits. So if you would like to support Mom and Dad are Fighting, go to slate.com slash momanddadplus and join Slate Plus today. Okay, let's go. Time now for a question from a listener. This one is from Kelly. Hi, guys. My name is Kelly, and I'm calling from Coleman, Alabama. Here's my question for which I would like your opinion. First, a little background. My 22-year-old son has a friend who works construction and came over to our house to help my husband out with his honeydew list. Um, To show our appreciation, we fixed a huge dinner and invited the boy and his girlfriend over to eat with us. 
We all sat down to dinner, at which point she fin- the girlfriend finished her dinner and immediately proceeded to pick up her phone, never looked up from it the entire time or engaged in conversation. So, should I just accept that times have changed and this is what kids do now and let it go, or follow through with my original insulted feelings and hold fast to the angry promise I made that that rude little girl would never be invited to my house again, ever, for anything. Thanks, guys. Again, my name is Kelly, better known as Angry Old School Mom Who Might Need to Chill a Bit. Thanks. (laughs) Bye-bye. I love Kelly. (laughs) Great question. Just to clarify in case anybody missed the details at the beginning, uh, the Kelly's son is 22 years old, and he and a friend came and, and helped out with some stuff around the house. And then the friend's girlfriend is is the rude dinner party guest. And so I think we can assume that the girlfriend is all is around 22, is an adult, um, and and we're not dealing with a, a, a kid or a teenager here. Right. So what do you yes. guys think? Well, I think that even if you were dealing with a kid or a teenager, you are under no obligation to invite somebody you hate back to your house ever. You know, I I think it's great that she didn't feel the need to do that thing that some people do, which is in the moment tell people in this situation that they're being rude, people that they might never see again or never interact with again. If I think if this if she's in a situation where this young uh, woman does come back to her house, either, you know, maybe she just tags along one day. Perhaps then she says could say something at the beginning of the meal, like, "Hey, you know, we we try not to use our phones in this family, in, in this in, at the dinner table in this family." But no, you are under no obligation to ever invite someone back to your house who's been rude, who has um, in some way offended your sensibilities. It's not an, an obligation, and this isn't like it's your son's girlfriend, so you have to like make some sort of weird compromise with this or communicate. I, I just I just would let it go. I wouldn't talk about it to. The guy who's been helping out, um, and I, I just wouldn't invite her back. That sounds like an easy fix to me. Yeah, I think that's right. I think the question then is, um, could you say something in the moment as well? I think we all agree. I know uh, I agree with Rebecca at least that that's that, that that's rude behavior. If you're a guest in somebody's house and and you pull out your phone and you're fucking around on your phone for an extended period at the dinner table, that is rude behavior. And norms in this area are shifting, but I. I firmly put myself on the side of keeping the norms against like spending uh, an extended period screwing around on your phone when you're at somebody's dinner table. If you need to like check a text and then apologize and excuse yourself and very quickly address an important situation, then that's a slightly different thing and a bit more complex. But it sounds like this person was definitely being rude and and I wouldn't want that at my house either. And, and I also wouldn't be inviting her back. But so then the question is, like, could you say something? Rebecca says uh, you, you you shouldn't say something. You're never going to see her again. I wonder if you can say, like, actually, we, we try not to have our phones out at the dinner table. If you can do it in a way that doesn't quite convey the seething rage that you feel uh, at the the destruction of the ritual of having a communal meal together, which is so sacred and important to human activity and which is now being <laughs> trampled by contemporary technology and young people who don't seem to know how to deal with it properly. Um, I don't know if you can But what say are you it. trying to say, Gabe? <laughs> I don't know if you can express it in, in a relatively warm and polite way that maintains your status as, as a like gracious host, uh, but it might be worth giving it a go. What do you think, Carvel? I think this is an irritant, but this is not something that makes me hate someone. But it, it is it is important enough that I would say something in in the moment. 
I don't I personally wouldn't be so offended by the fact that a 22 year old looked at their phone at the dinner table to never invite them back. That's to me, that's not a fireable offense, but it's something that I wouldn't invite them back without saying very clearly. That's not what we do here. And and that's the end of it. But I want to give them a chance to redeem themselves. I want to give them a chance to display better behavior. Uh, it's not great. It doesn't. It's not a great foot to get started off on. It doesn't reflect great on them at the beginning. But I also don't think it means that they're such an incorrigible and and kind of like unfixable person that they should never be allowed to step foot into my house again. My house is not that sacred. It's like this is what we do. These are the ways we do things. I want to make sure this person knows. And I also think it's important to say it to this person because as an, I feel this way. I know when I was growing up, all the, all the older people in our family and extended friends and friends of parents and parents of friends, et cetera, all felt that they were preparing us in general for the world. So like they're going to tell us if we're 18, 19 and we do something rude, we don't make eye contact, we don't say yes, ma'am or sir, or whatever the thing is. That is the thing in their house. They're going to tell us so that we know next time when we go over someone else's house not to pull that same shit. So I, tw- 22, is a, 22 is a little old, but it, you're right. Everything is changing. The norms are changing. And I don't – so I don't mean the norms are changing like this should be accepted. But I mean that it might not be as rude a thing really for a 22-year-old as it would be for me to do that. So I want to give this kid a chance to get their shit together. So I'm going to say something. I'm probably not going to – forbid them from coming into my house. I'm going to make sure they know what the rules are. And then if they can't follow them, that's when I determine they're an incorrigible asshole and screw them. Yeah, I totally, Listen, I totally agree but, with that. But but she didn't say something at the time. She didn't, right? Uh, so she's not asking if she should have said something. She's saying she didn't, you know, and what should she do now? And I think life is too short. She's not talking about somebody who's using their phone at the dinner table. She's talking about somebody, in her words, who never looked up once and didn't engage with the people who had invited her over for a meal ever again. Now, if I go out with a coworker uh, for the first time and I hate the coworker's spouse or girlfriend, like, I'm, life is too short. Like, I don't have enough time to spend time with people that, you know, aren't just just don't seem to have, like, the basic decency to, like, engage. I don't know. I, I think that this is an adult. I don't think it's a young – I think 22. I think we're talking about an adult if it, if this person is, in fact, 22. And I don't think she mm. should forbid her from ever coming over again. But does she need to expressly invite her? Does she need to say, hey, Billy, please bring your lovely girlfriend back? No. She can invite Billy over. And then if he asks, can I bring my girlfriend back, she can say, sure. But do me a favor and maybe – uh. We won't have any cell phones out this time and like just put look, put a little pin in it and then that's that. But I don't know. I, mm-hmm. I think you guys are, are too generous with your time. <laughs> I like Carvel's suggestion, though, that, um, you know, those of us who want to reassert the validity of the no cell phone, like those of us who want to reassert the norm of not staring into your cell phone for an entire dinner have some responsibility to do the work of educating around that norm, to to police it a little bit. I think it depends who you're policing. I, I do. I think if it was your son's girlfriend, it would be different. But this is someone I, I also think life – yeah, well, but it's all part of the community and that's, that's kind of the way I look at it. But I also think that life is too short to hold grudges against 22-year-olds because <laughs> – <laughs> Good point. Excellent point. I'm going to let mine go now against this unknown woman because I, I was kind of feeling a little heated up too. Yeah, you got a little fired up there. I did. I think I think because my kids have friends over for dinner and for the most part, my kids' friends are so freaking awesome and fun and social and like engaging and 
would never it would never occur to them to not like hang out with us when they're being invited to hang out with us. And so that one time when you have one over that sucks, like it really sticks out, you know, (laughs) and it's usually like my kid then who doesn't want to invite that person back because he feels it, too. You know what I mean? Yeah. So, yeah. It, yeah. I mean, it's and it's I mean, it's bad behavior. There's no doubt about it. But also even the fr- like just looking at it from the other point of view, I know that like older people, if you look at your phone for like three minutes, they're like, do you ever look up from that thing? You know what I mean? So the phrase never once looked up from her phone may just be sort of like a feeling thing instead of mm-hmm. like I watched the entire time and the person literally never looked up. I oh, don't this, know. this question suddenly became an M. Night Shyamalan movie. <laughs> <laughs> She, all, all she did was like look at a text and like swipe the other way and then put her phone back. And now suddenly I mean, the I, camera closes in on <laughs> Kelly. Ooh. This is great. Who knows? But, but yeah, no, it, it's, it's, it's definitely crappy behavior. And like either way, the kid needs, it needs to be addressed with the kid uh, or the 22-year-old. I wonder what's under her bed though. <laughs> Kelly, find out what's under her bed and report back to us. Well, we're looking forward to hearing from you. All right. Uh, time, I think, for another question. Our next question uh, came to us over email, and so we're going to hear it read by Slate Browbeat Assistant Rachel Withers, who comes from Australia, as you will no doubt be able to discern. Dear Mum and Dad of Fighting, love your podcast. I'd love your advice on this. My husband and I have been together for 15 years, married for 13, and parents for 10. We share a sarcastic sense of humour, and when we are together without kids, we have a great time. We have two kids, 10 and 6. The 6-year-old is neurotypical and gets along well with both my husband and me. The 10-year-old has ADHD and is quirky. He's on a lot of medication that helps him function throughout the day. Off the meds, he is hyperactive, can't sit at the dinner table without a book or device, fidgets constantly, and so on. None of this bothers me, but it bothers my husband a lot. He will yell at our son for behaviours that aren't a problem for me. Our son takes as much medication as he can, but some of it eventually wears off later at night. It also takes a bit of time to kick in. He takes his meds at breakfast. Today, as our son was finishing breakfast, just immediately after taking his medication, so before it was fully effective, my husband said something sarcastic to our son about his appearance. Son was insulted and said something similar back to husband. I told husband to knock it off, but instead he continued the insults. Son, who needed to leave for school, quickly left to catch the bus. I asked my husband why he continued to be unkind to our son, and he simply laughed it off. I told him that when he speaks this way to our son, our son hates him for it. Instead of apologising for his words, he ignored me and later left for work. Our son is sensitive and has asked me privately why his father is so mean to him, why I haven't divorced him, and so on. But other times, father and son get along well together, so it's not constant. Since this episode, however, my husband hasn't spoken to me all day. This is a common thing for him, giving me the silent treatment when he is angry about something he thinks I have done wrong. I feel I was defending my son against his father's sarcasm. We've been in couples therapy about this issue before, and while it was effective in the past, husband agrees to ease up on son, husband refuses to go now. These silent treatment episodes happen periodically. Since they seem to be triggered by something about our son, his behaviour, his perception of his father being mean to him, what would you suggest? On one hand, I am livid that my husband continues to belittle our son for something that son can't control. On the other hand, when it's just me and my husband, or my six-year-old and husband and I, these issues don't come up. In fact, we get along well together. And my son says I am his favourite parent, 
and I feel that I have to be the peacemaker often so that there is family harmony. I don't want my son to hate his father or to live in fear of him. At the same time, since husband won't go back to couples therapy or consider family therapy, I'm not sure what else to do. I don't want to divorce over this. What do you suggest? Thanks. This sounds bad to me. This this really does sound bad to me. This sounds like um, a husband and father who is a very long way away from dealing with his emotions in a mature and useful fashion. I think anytime you're giving the person that you love or the person that you live with or the person that you co-parent with the silent treatment, that's a major problem. Um, I understand that feelings come up in parenting. I understand feelings of frustration, anger, a feeling of maybe you want things to be a certain way and your kids and your kid's parent, your kid's other parent are, are not allowing it to be that way and that can make you feel frustrated and I get all that. I've been there. I don't think that uh, the way to address that is to freeze out the co-parent or your wife. That strikes me as tremendously problematic. And if the feelings are so overwhelming that you can't communicate them or talk about them or work through them with your partner, but you refuse to go to couples therapy or to family therapy, then I I actually don't think there are a lot of options. It's interesting to me that this um, that this comes up only with the one son who's not neurotypical, and that and so it makes me wonder two things, which I'm just going to throw out as guesses. I don't, I'm not, you know, I'm not like these are just observations, possibilities. One is that the father feels has not yet accepted or come to terms with the state of his son, with the real the real situation. He hasn't accepted it. He's still mad about it. He's still resentful about it. Um, It still bothers him. And that the way he's expressing this is um, two ways. One is by kind of like throwing these jabs because he's not accepting that, look, it is going to be hard for this kid to put his shirt on right or whatever the thing is. And the second way he's expressing it is that when the kid is gone and when the mother stands up for the kid, this kind of like seething silent treatment. Both of these sound to me like things having to do with a parent who hasn't truly come to terms with the reality of, of a son who's not neurotypical. The other thing that it makes me wonder, and this is really a reach, but I just thought of this this time, is I wonder if the husband also is neurotypical or if he maybe is. Um, because sometimes people who are spectrum have difficulty dealing with emotions and feel unsettled when things are not lined up in a particular way. And it sounds like that this father, even though he may mask it sometimes under joking, the real issue that he's having is that things aren't lining up his way and um, and his son isn't behaving in his way and that things aren't going the way that he wants and he thinks he should be allowed to say something about that. And when, and when his wife says, actually, when you say things like that, it hurts your son and I'm not into it, then that's yet another thing not going his way. So instead of being able to deal with that and saying, boy, that's really not my intention. I really don't want to hurt him. I'm sorry. He, you know, sometimes I do that because I feel afraid or whatever any mature person would say. He then freezes her out which is, in my experience, a sign of overwhelm when you just have so many thoughts and feelings that you just can't talk and so you just would rather sort of shut your mouth and close your eyes and hope it all goes away. But So those are just guesses. But one thing I do know is that this is not good. This is not the kind of thing that gets better on its own. This is the kind of thing that does require, I think, discussion with a third-party therapy, family therapy, marriage therapy, et cetera. Failing that... 
I know this person says they don't want to leave over this. I'm not counseling anyone to leave over this. That's, but I, it's hard for me to see this as anything other than a sign of a relationship that's in trouble. What do you guys think? Yeah, no, I completely agree with you. And this email is one of the, I think, the saddest um, queries we've gotten since I've started working on the show, for sure. Um, it unfolds like an, like an onion, right? Like she begins saying they had this great relationship. It's it's fun. It's sarcastic. It's And then we're fine when we don't have the kids, and then we're not fine when we do. But then she also describes a lot of troubling relationship dynamics that have nothing to do with the kids, you know, at telling your partner that you're upset and that you guys aren't in it together and that he's not being a good partner for you as a parent and then being frozen out for that and punished for it. being frozen out as a form of punishment. You're being punished when somebody is freezing you out, giving the silent treatment. And believe me, as somebody who is like an expert at doing the silent treatment when I want to, like, I know that's what it is. It's punishment. It's it's some sort of like retribution for you did this. Now mm. I'm going to show you and not talk to you. I mean, everybody in their worst moments, if you're anything like me, uh, have done that <laughs> at some point in the past. And I'm not it's it's I know it's not good and it's not healthy. And it's something I work to avoid doing when I'm upset because my relationship matters to me and it's more important for me that I work on the relationship than it is that I win. You know, I think you're on to something, Carvel. You know, she mentioned her son had ADHD. She didn't talk about him being on the spectrum. But, you know, as somebody who has a, a son with ADHD and who also, as an adult, discovered I had ADHD, um, my kid's dad um, did dealt with Teddy's ADHD very differently than I did. He spent many, 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 many years trying to fix it, making him mm. appointments in Boston and at, at Dartmouth and, you know, taking him to specialists and, you know, just doing all of these steps when even our most our primary care physician was like, you know how what you do is you try ADHD meds and if they don't work, try a different one. And then if they don't work, try a different one. It's just if it's very much a trial and error kind of situation. And I think we had some conflict. We were divorced at the time over this, over the tactical stuff. You know, is this something you try to repair or is it something you try to work with? And and so sort of like uh, accept that this is what it is, that he can't do things, not that he won't do things, and then figure out what work, works best and just go day by day and don't see him as damaged. Just see him as like completely wired differently, which is kind of how ADHD Works. I mean, I'm not saying that other things are damaged. They're not. But it is definitely a very much of a wiring issue. And people with ADHD have like superpowers in some ways that people who don't have it don't. I mean, the fact that, you know, a kid with ADHD can listen to music, do their homework and watch a video all at the same time, which most of them can do. Um, it shows that they're just differently abled and their brain just operates sort of differently. And whether you have it and you're denying it or you don't have it and you don't get it, both of those things can be really, really frustrating. But what I'm hearing here is a father who is, frankly, behaving emotionally abusively to both his kid and to his wife. And um, I think it's really bad. And I think that if it were me, I would absolutely insist upon not just counseling for the two of you, but also counseling for your kids, because maybe it's just the one son who has ADHD who you think is being affected. I guarantee you the whole system is being affected by this. If, if you are waking mm -hmm. up in the morning, you know, as somebody who yeah. was once in a marriage that didn't work out, if you're waking up in the morning wondering how to structure your day around the moods of the people in your house because of the family dynamic, 
then the whole system is disrupted. And I guarantee that that is what you are doing when you wake up and your husband is freezing you out. You're wondering when it's going to end. You're wondering who's going to walk in the door at the end of the day. You need help. You guys both need a lot of help and your kids need a lot of help. And run, don't walk to get that help. And if you don't get the help, you have to really think hard about whether or not, A, you want to continue living this way, and B, whether or not this is the family model you want to model for your children. Because everything Mm -hmm. your kids learn about how to be a family, they learn from being in a family. And it is really important to remember that each and every day. Mm. Yeah, so... so First off, of course, I agree this is serious. This is a bad situation, and this is a big problem. And all of the little glimmers of nice stuff that you put in your email, the, oh, we have a great time sharing a sarcastic sense of humor when the kids aren't around and when it's just the two of us and the younger kid, then this stuff doesn't come up. And sometimes my husband even gets along with the with the older son. And all of that just sort of adds a note of pathos to what feels like a tragic situation of uh, your husband who, for whatever reason, and I, I don't want to speculate about what's going on with your husband, but there's something that uh, uh, there's something about the situation where he is acting in a way that's not okay. That's not an okay way for a father to act towards a kid. And so now the question is like, what are you going to do about it? And the husband says he's not going to go back to counseling, even though it's been productive in the past. Uh, And you say you don't want to divorce him over this. So let's think about whether there are any other options. And and I think, first of all, the the question that comes to mind is whether you have any leverage, right? Like if if, if you've already said you're not going to walk out over it, then you're saying you're basically okay with this situation. And and if that's right, then okay, the situation is just going to carry on. Um, if you have any other leverage over your husband, if there's anything you can if, – if you can let him know the way you're acting towards our older son is not acceptable, it's not okay with me, and unless it stops immediately, then I'm going to do X or Y or I'm going to stop doing A or B – uh, if you have leverage like that, then then I suggest you use it. I don't know how much of an effect it's going to have, but it's worth trying. Um, beyond that, again, if you've if you've taken divorce off the table, um, I think all you can do otherwise is focus your energy on protecting your son from the father who he lives with, who is uh, abusing him, and and do what you can to protect your older kid and also your younger kid and also yourself. Seems like a bad situation to me, and and I don't think you should be uh, taking divorce off the table in the way that you are, but uh, that's your decision. Uh, I would add one more thought, which is uh, if this is how he's acting with your son when you're around, uh, how do you think he's acting when you're not around? Um, That's one of the aspects of this question that really scares me. Okay. Thanks very much for writing, and good luck. If you have a question that you'd like us to address on the air, you can call and leave us a message at 424-255-7833 or email us at slate.com or send us a message on our Facebook page, facebook.com slash momanddadarefighting. Okay, time now for recommendations. Carvel, what do you recommend? Well, Halloween did pass, but the season of horror, in my mind is always available because it's always time to be frightened. And uh, one of the things that I, my kids now fully watch horror movies, which is something that I, my, my daughter told me that she snuck in to see it actually a couple of weeks ago. 
little Georgia, little 12-year-old Georgia who used to be afraid to walk down the hall because she thought a monster was going to jump out of the closet. Now her and her friends were – we another parent dropped them off to see some movie and then they snuck in and they pulled with the old switcheroo and snuck in and saw it. Classic and, stuff. Uh, classic stuff. And I was like, well, you know, this sucks because now you're going to be up all night and then coming into our room and yelling at us. But she didn't. She went to bed by – I don't know what happened. She just switched. But I remembered that, um, you know, as a family, we all love horror movies um, and – Back in the day, before my kids could tolerate any real blood and guts and gore, they really liked Coraline, the film, the animated film, which is really structured like a horror movie in some ways, um, but for kids and the way it unfolds and the way that it's beaded out and the way that, you know, the presentation of monster and darkness and fear. And it's just, it's just, a, it's just a perfect amount for kids, you know, somewhere between the ages of, I'd say seven, you know, to nine to ten, somewhere in that range. Coraline, a beautifully made film. I think it's from two thousand nine, somewhere in that range. Um, just a beautiful film. Just a, we loved it a lot as a family, and I'm going to go ahead and recommend it uh, if you want to continue the Halloween festivities. It's a, it's a great movie, and it's based on a novella by uh, Neil Gaiman, which is also a great book. And um, yeah, I think that's absolutely right. It's a horror story for kids. Rebecca, what do you recommend? <laughs> Well, I mentioned uh, Stranger Things 2 earlier, which I have been watching with my kids. We finished it last night. And funny enough, uh, my kids also are not afraid of anything. I am afraid of everything. I am one of those people I can barely tolerate suspense of any kind. So Teddy was sitting behind me with his hands over my eyes for like half the scenes in some of the episodes of Stranger Things 2. (laughs) But because I'm inspired by Stranger Things 2 to remember sort of like the progenitor media things that fed this phenomenon that is Stranger Things, if you don't mind your kids seeing swears in movies, definitely sit down with them and watch the 1985 film The Goonies. Uh, Sean Astin, of course, makes an appearance in this season of Stranger Things. Sean Astin is the star of this classic family film directed by Steven Spielberg in which kids behave like kids, look for pirate treasure, and say the word shit a whole lot. And it's just really, <laughs> really fun. Um, there are some uncomfortable, uh, you know, not very uh, 2017, way more 1985 uh, racial stereotypes in the film. That's the only thing that I can sort of like warn you about that doesn't really hold up. But as a, as a whole picture, um, especially if your kids love Stranger Things like mine do, like they'll totally get it when they watch The Goonies, because so much of Stranger Things is based, it's like the source material for The Goonies, basically. So I recommend it. We really loved watching it as a family when my kids were a little younger. And if it's if it's on TV now, we happen to be surfing by it, we'll still stop and uh, watch the whole thing. That's exactly right. We actually watched that with the kids a while ago. I, I, was, I went through this phase where I was reintroducing them to all the movies in my childhood to see if they stood up. We did Karate Kid. We did, you know, Stand By Me and so forth. And then... Uh, and then we did we did the Goonies. The Goonies was the only one they liked. They thought Stand By Me was the dumbest movie ever made. <laughs> oh no! They were like the acting in this is so bad. I was like, but that but that's this, River but, Phoenix. Come on, that, that's River Phoenix. That's the late River Phoenix. They were like, we don't care that he overdosed. He's a terrible actor. Like, the movie, the acting is so bad. But Goonies was the only one that stood the test of generational time. So just putting that out there. That's funny. <laughs> <laughs> I feel like after this, my recommendation is is going to be like spinach. Like you're, you, you, you could be watching Carline, you could be watching The Goonies, uh, or you could be checking out Christopher Danielson's blog, Talking Math with Your Kids. Oh, that's good. Oh, nerd alert. That's not so right. bad. <laughs> no, here's what it is. I went to, at, at the kids' school, there was like a thi- uh, thing, a presentation about the math curriculum or whatever, and the guy who like does math at their school 
is really thoughtful about teaching math to little kids. And he recommended this one blog. It has videos and blog posts and and, uh, puzzles and shapes and games and stuff like that. Um, And it's really interesting on, like, the conceptual stuff of how kids figure out their way around, like, simple uh, arithmetic and uh, geometry and all the basic stuff. And you realize, like, teaching kids to... Follow a set of rules in order to learn how to divide one number by another number is like, okay, you can teach them how to divide, but all you're actually doing is getting in the way of their thinking about abstract concepts. Mm -hmm. Uh, And if you want to have interesting, open-ended conversations with your kids in odd moments while you're like counting out the change or jumping down a certain number of stairs or whatever it is, whenever numbers or abstractions come up in, in everyday life with your kids, uh, this is a blog that's full of really interesting stuff about how kids' minds work and how they think about math and abstractions. So if you're interested in math, but also if you're interested in like if you have little kids and you're interested in how they're thinking about stuff, um, I urge you to check this out. The blog is called Talking Math with Your Kids. You could type that into Google or uh, we will post a link to it on our Facebook page. Gabe, I really like that recommendation. I'll tell you something. I was good at math when I was a kid. I can't really say that so much anymore. Just I've forgotten a lot of how to do the math that I used to be good at. When my son was really little, I taught him a trick that I learned when I was really little, which is instead of thinking of numbers of things as quantities of things, which is how it's taught here in the U.S., you know, like three jelly beans minus two is one, teaching numbers as points on a line. And then all of a sudden, like negative numbers totally make sense. Like everything totally makes sense. And it's more in line with the way that kids think than quantity is. And it's more in line with the way math actually works, because as it turns out, kids' brains are actually wired to understand math, and we interrupt it with our, like, BS quantity problems, (laughs) apparently. So, yeah, I think that's a great recommendation. Yeah, that's actually the big movement now in Common Core curriculum, which I don't know if it's reached everyone out there, but in in with our kids, that has the, been the transition from an algorithmic-based method where you just memorize formulas and kind of uh, repetitive ways to do things. So it's like always carry the one, always put this, you know, and now their Common Core allows kids to think of mathematics in all these different ways. So when I sit down and do homework with Georgia right now, almost all of it is using number lines and finding ways to conceive of numbers visually. And it is it is amazing to see how different that is from what I learned. I'm still I recognize that it's a lot better, and I did teach math uh, for a number of years. I taught SAT prep algebra and algebra two and lightweight trig um, for a number of years, and so I like really learned how to do things algorithmically, and I like shed blood, sweat, and tears <laughs> all the way through my like high school. So to me, part of me is like offended by the coming of Common Core and the usage of um, more abstract concepts. But when I just step back and look at it, it's so much better. And it allows yeah. math to, to be so much more useful as a way of learning thinking as opposed to a way of learning memorization. This math teacher at the kids' school had a really interesting uh, way of putting what you just said. He said, you know, when I teach kids the algorithmic method where you line up one number and you line up another underneath it and you draw a line below them and you show them how to add the digits and carry the one and like that – I can teach kids how to do that, but it's the kind of teaching that makes you feel a little queasy in your stomach because you wind up being like, no, no, just do it this way and this way and this way, and then you get the right answer. And you realize (laughs) you're not actually teaching them how to think. You're just teaching them how to do something. And and he said this other way of teaching just opens up a ton of stuff for them. I think it's great. 
And that's our show. If you have a question that you would like us to address, uh, you can call us at 424-255-7833. Uh, let us know what you think of the show on our Facebook page, facebook.com slash fighting. This show is produced by Benjamin Frisch. For Carvel Wallace and Rebecca Lavoie, I'm Gabriel Roth, and we will be back next week. 